Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast, where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, Vice President of Provider Relations at Trapello and one of the host of the Precision Medicine Podcast. And today we have Sandeep Bobby Reddy, Chief Medical Officer of Nant Health, a gentleman who has produced over 100 abstracts, 30 peer-reviewed publications since 2014 in the field of precision medicine. Dr. Reddy, thank you for being a guest on the Precision Medicine Podcast. Well, thank you, Jerome. You can, you can call me Bobby, and it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Tell us about your training and, and what was it that attracted you into the field of precision medicine? Well, I uh, trained as a hematologist-oncologist, and at the time, the, the notion of precision medicine was just emerging. In training, one is exposed to the idea of evidence-based medicine, and you spend a lot of time memorizing the results of a clinical trial that, you know, ABB, that the hazard ratio was so-and-so and the p-value was, you know, statistically significant. And at that time, there was this emerging idea that we could better select individual patients uh, for these clinical trials. And it, it made me kind of question and, and think about the data that I was memorizing, that I was internalizing how we would choose, you know, which regimens for, say, a breast cancer patient, a colon cancer, a lung cancer patient, the idea that we could actually change that from being sort of agnostic to the individual patient, where we're just looking at a big trial and it, being able to take that data and drill it down to being highly specific, it, was, it just was very compelling for me at that time. Bobby, I've known you for some years and just kind of going back in this field of precision medicine, I still have conversations with early adopters, forward thinkers like yourself, that back in 2005, 2004, you know, people were saying, oh, we're not there yet. We're not yet there yet. And there's still some saying we're not there yet. But what did you foresee that made you an early adopter of precision medicine in, in, in your practice versus some of your peers who still have not embraced the use of genomic testing to inform treatment decisions? Yeah, I think that the advantage of precision medicine, and I was very lucky, I was very fortunate. So I, I had some unique advantages um, by location. So I was in Southern California, and there's a lot of um, activity in the space in this in this region. So there was a lot of companies in the San Diego Biotech Corridor and in Los Angeles that were developing precision medicine platforms that were reaching out and asking for patients, asking for samples. So that exposure was, I guess, you know, a little bit unique and gave me a, a different opportunity maybe than, than some of my colleagues. So when you get a, a chance to, to, to really look under the hood and see what actually is happening in the laboratory, and you compare that with, say, what's happening in your local pathology laboratory in the hospital, you see that, okay, this is similar, high-quality data, the same kind of processes that are being, you know, undertaken in your hospital, but just with newer instruments. 
So rather than the microscope, which is several hundred years old, we've got newer instruments. We've got at this point, you know, is PCR and, and, and then sequencing coming on board, but better, newer technology, same kinds of individuals still working with pathologists, the same people who are giving you data that you would use to make clinical decisions. This is just another tool. So for me, it was, it was kind of just the evolution of practice and then also a very interesting time and place where we had this emerging technology and I was lucky enough to be deeply immersed in it. You've been a thought leader, even in the industry, you've helped shape the offering as a, as a consultant or as a key opinion leader, not only of companies that have emerging technology in the industry, but also speaking to your peers across the country. You know, what's that experience been like working with industry and then helping your peers to understand how to adopt these these tests and these different way of thinking into their practice. If for the most part, it's a positive experience because yeah, I'm, it, this is America, and I believe in capitalism. And so, yeah. in order to to drive adoption and 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 drive utility, we need to have some economic benefit as well, right? It, it, we have to have clinical utility. We have to show that new technology is going to benefit the patient. That's first and foremost. But if it bankrupts the system at the same time, it's, it's not tenable. And so, you know, industry is well positioned to be able to bring economies of scale to things like molecular testing, any kind of testing, to bring innovation faster to market than maybe an academic institution could do. So uh, industry has some some of those advantages built in. Being able to talk to peers, of course, is, is fantastic. To your earlier question, there are various degrees of adoption. So you have early adopters, you have late adopters, you have non-adopters. And um, for me, it's been interesting and, and, and challenging at the same time because it's helpful. It allows one to question one's own you know, thought process and one's belief about data. If somebody says to you, well, why should I do that? Why, why should I treat this patient with, say, an EGFR uh, inhibitor in, you know, in the absence of clear data that the molecular test is necessary? So we're going back to 2005. We were giving these drugs to people because they had a certain phenotype, which was non-smoking female. And now we know that non-smoking females who don't have an EGFR mutation really don't benefit and they should get chemotherapy. And smoking males with that mutation, although in that group it's rare, it does occur, they benefit from the targeted therapy. So once the data became available, it became much easier. And we've seen that evolution, I think, that over time more and more precision-guided therapeutics have come to market because the data is there. And it's become an easier path for clinicians to to accept. But it certainly is, it's a challenge, but it's also fun and exciting. Anything in the educational space is, I think, fun and exciting. Yeah, definitely. Who are some of the companies that you worked with and, and kind of the role that you had with those companies? And it kind of goes back a while with your career. Can you share some of the companies? Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned I'm with Nant Health now, and, and prior to this, I was with Keras Life Sciences. And um, prior to that, as I said, I was in, lucky enough to be in Southern California, so I served as a consultant for a variety of companies. I helped launch Response Genetics and had been a consultant for companies like Biotheranostics and Genoptics. And as a result, 
you know, each of these companies has their own sweet spot. Some are focused on a certain tumor type. Some are focused on a certain technology platform. Some are agnostic to platforms. Like at Keras, there was immunohistochemistry on a, on a grand scale, but also sequencing microarray, fish, SISH, you name it. So that has allowed me to kind of have a, a different opinion maybe than others who only focus on one technical platform or one tumor type. And you can see that precision medicine has had tremendous successes in some areas, and I would argue limited successes in others. You know, we don't have really a strong need for precision medicine in, say, sarcoma, where we don't have precision therapeutics uh, that are tied to molecular tests. But in lung cancer, we have so many and so many different platforms. We have strong need for immunohistochemistry for PDL1, but we also need sequencing for EGFR, or we could do that by PCR, but we need some type of genomic test. We need to know their tumor mutation burden. So there's, there's a lot of different platforms out there, and each company, I think, has strengths in different platforms and different cancer subtypes. In your clinical practice, do you specialize in, in one particular tumor or do you see uh, general across the board different cancer types? Yeah, it's a funny question because that is the standard question that one gets. I think any oncologist can relate to this that people ask, well, what, you know, what do you specialize in? And for a long time now, I have been stating to people that I am a, I'm not a generalist. I'm a molecularist. And they say, what does that mean? Uh, uh. And the idea is that, you know, the tumor doesn't care where it came from. The tumor doesn't care that it's a breast cancer or lung cancer or kidney cancer. It's, it's going to try to kill you either way. And understanding the underlying tumor biology, regardless of its site of origin, is critical to then be able to devise the most effective treatment strategy. And so I, I'm a generalist, I guess, in that, in the sense that I'm looking at all cancers independently. We call it a pan-tumor approach, where it doesn't matter the original site, it's really about its underlying biology and being able to dig into that as deeply as possible. And we've evolved from, you know, in the early days, one or two genes to now we can do whole genome and whole RNA transcriptome. So we can get really deep look at the tumor and as well the host the individual, you know, patient and use all that information to kind of pick the, hopefully the best treatment plan. Hey, Karen, we found our excerpt. Now that was powerful. I've never actually heard anybody say that, Bobby. Like mm. you're, you're a molecularist. Yeah, I know. I love it. This, this is all commentary, by the way. So, so that's yeah, really that powerful. I think that's a, that's a really good clip to, uh, to yeah, promote this with. Okay. All right. I'm trademarking it right now. Hold on. Hold on. Let me, let me trademark. No, no doubt, man. No doubt. That was really powerful. Get the dark calm quick. <laughs> yeah. So your practice, your clinical practice today, you still treat patients, correct? Yeah, I still see patients only uh, one day a week, but uh, I try to stay involved in clinical practice. I think it's important to maintain, you know, one's skills and credibility, but it's also, it gives me kind of a living laboratory to be able to use the technologies, all the various technologies that, that are at our fingertips and see them, you know, in actual practice and actual use in real patients and be able to follow results dynamically over time. To me, that's, that's really gratifying because there's no point in building a, a better box if you can't use it to help somebody. 
that's just super unique because not only do you, you still treat patients, you're very involved with clinical trials and you serve as chief medical officer of a very innovative company, Nant Health, not to mention all the publications that you've had in a very short period of time in precision medicine. How did your career evolve in that direction? And, and my goodness, how do you manage it all? As I said, I've been, I, I would attribute a lot of it to luck, you know, being very fortunate to work with very good people. So, um, the, the crux of it is you can't really manage everything. <laughs> so you need good people. You need to surround yourself with good people. Being able to see patients on a part-time basis means that other people need to be available to see those patients, to follow up on them, handle, you know, problems. And so I have, I have good colleagues that are they're able to manage things when I'm away. Being able to publish means that you have to have excellent collaborators, and I've been very fortunate to have that, and work with really good data sets because without high-quality data, you have nothing. And so very, very lucky to work with people that know what they're doing and also possess high-quality data. And then in terms of clinical trials, you know, I think that's sort of an obligation, really, for any oncologist is to be able to at least refer patients to the right clinical trials if you can't participate in them yourself. But clinical trials generally give us the opportunity to compare, you know, true standard of care versus something really, you know, novel and interesting. So that's good for our patients because if the patients are getting standard of care, we certainly can't argue with that. And if the patients can get something novel and interesting and actually benefit from that, that that's a win. So for me, I, I think it's it's just part and parcel of, of being a, a normal practicing medical oncologist. Yes. You, you illustrated beautifully, like the evolution of the technologies and not only the technology, but the approach toward precision medicine going from maybe one or two targets to looking at a very broad spectrum of genomic targets. But when you consider the evolution that has happened and kind of where, how far we need to go, where are we in the big picture of making precision medicine a routine clinical practice? We, I think, are in the infancy still. The reality is that we have a long way to go. And that shouldn't dishearten people. And in fact, it's the opposite. It should, it should enthuse people. You should get really excited because it means that there's so much more out there. There's a lot of fertile ground, a lot of territory, you know, for us to conquer. So for the young people who are in training, you know, they, this is a good field to be in because this is the future. The reason that we're in its infancy is we know so very little. You know, we, as you mentioned, we went from single gene kind of platforms where we're doing Sanger sequencing, pyro sequencing, evolving to, you know, multiplex PCR to now next generation sequencing where we can do the whole genome. But even the whole genome is not everything hmm. because now we need to look at RNA. And even if we do whole transcriptome, we are not getting the non-coding RNA pieces, which we know have meaning. You know, what we used to think was junk DNA, it's clearly not junk. And so even if we have all of that, we don't have the next level, which is the protein. Yeah. And so, you know, proteomics is an evolving science, an evolving field. And even if we get to proteomics, we still have to look at the interaction of RNA and protein because they form different complex interactions. It's not just the linear sequence that matters. It's that three-dimensional structural conformation and how they interact. And so our knowledge of this biology is very, very early. 
And so I think we have a long way to go. But as I said, I think that's very exciting because there's so many great opportunities for discovery that yet remain, you know, to happen. Yeah, I think it, it's true. The the saying, the the more you know, the more you find that you don't know, right? <laughs> the more information that comes forward, it's like, what do you do with that? But with that information, Bobby, there's obviously so many companies that come out with different tests in this space. And for a practicing clinician, it can be really hard to tell what's, you know, a good test from something that's not so good. What's your advice for healthcare professionals who want to integrate, you know, precision medicine into routine practice? Well, I think there's there's a couple of different things I would say. The first thing is there are sort of minimums, right? So the minimums are CAP-CLIA uh, certification of the laboratory. Like that's the, the basic standard. So you want to make sure that the underlying quality of the work being performed is good. It's been inspected and approved and you can trust the output. And then the next step is, I think, the other levels of certification, so higher levels. And that's going to come from, say, New York State Department of Health certification and or FDA or CE mark for a device or test. So these higher levels of certification are much more difficult to, to obtain, but they do possess a certain level of gravitas that in order to achieve an FDA approval, one has to go through the ringer. And you know that the end result of that product is a result that you can trust at a higher level. Now, having said that, I certainly wouldn't discount the value of what we call the LDT, the laboratory developed tests, because laboratory developed tests allow us to be innovative. And as we learn, as, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, it's an evolving field. And so new things are being published every day. And so we can't just stand on our laurels and say, well, there's just one test we developed three years ago, and that's that. And we can't move. We have to be constantly evolving. So there's a role for both. I think clinicians need to choose a test based on what they feel comfortable with. I think there are practical considerations, which is, you know, can the patient afford the test? Is it covered by their insurance plan? Is it, you know, being given freely or, or is there discounts such that the patient can actually afford the test and then be able to get the rest of their treatment? Can this test lead to them getting treatment? So some tests are required for a patient to go on, say, a clinical trial or receive a certain drug. Then that's, that's a very important gating item that needs to be considered. And then I think last but not least, ease of use. So the worst thing to do is to get a result, and it doesn't have to be a laboratory test. It can be a, an MRI or a CT scan. It could be anything. But if it adds to confusion rather than giving us clarity, it's not helpful. It's hard enough to treat patients in real time in the real world. And so we need tests that the clinicians, the end user, can feel very comfortable with understanding what that result means and what the next step therapeutic action is based on that result. I know I'm not saying much of, of people who've heard you speak and who've read your, your publications that they learn so much. I have learned so much from you over the course of you know being in this industry because you see things not only from the provider perspective, you're, you're a practicing medical oncologist and, and your, your peers 
respect your opinion very much. But you also see things from the commercial perspective and the scientific and discovery perspective. And that's that's outside of the box. And maybe that comes from your love of comic books and thinking outside of the creative side of you. Like, so how, you know, where the love of comic books come from and how does that create creative side like benefit you in your thinking, in your practice and in business? Well, uh, you know, a creative outlet, I think, is always a good thing. I mean, you know, people play instruments and it's, I mean, it's kind of funny because I know a lot of, you know, well-known, academically successful hematologists, oncologists, I won't name names during, during this podcast, who, uh, mm-hmm. whenever I see them, we, we end up having a deep discussion about the comic books that we're reading, um, or graphic novels rather. So I think I was a normal child and I, and I read comic books as a child, but I, I probably never fully grew up. But I think you know, that creative outlets are always good, and it, it does allow you to maybe think tangentially about problems. And certainly, there is a fantasy element probably to precision medicine, which is that we really we have to hope and believe that we will get the right answer. You know, and when we do a test, when we do like a, a complex molecular test, we're all hoping that it's going to give us the right answer. And the truth is, it really isn't the test. It's really at this point, it's the patient. In other words, if the patient has the right attributes, the right characteristics, if, if your patient is going to be the lucky patient who's PDL1 really positive and has, you know, a, a high tumor mutation burden and a lot of neoantigens and is going to do fantastic when we give them immunotherapy, then the test should show us that. And if it's not, then the test isn't going to show us that. I think that that's, there's a, as I said, a, a sort of a hope and fantasy element built into there that probably everybody has, and mine just manifests in reading comic books. That's cool. That's cool. You know, here at Trapello, we lead the conversation of how payers, labs, and providers should work together to provide greater access and scale to precision medicine. And one of the major obstacles to widespread adoption, of course, is that payers do not pay for much of the testing or traditionally they haven't and they can make access to certain therapies very difficult. What are your thoughts about why payers should routinely pay for precision medicine testing and therapies? Well, I think that we have not as an industry and even as a community done a good enough job to convince payers. Otherwise they'd be paying. I mean, if we really believe that this is both clinically and economically beneficial, then, you know, the payers would, would agree. They would see it that way. I mean, if we had convincing evidence. So payers do pay for things. I mean, we know that. they Their name is payer. It's in their name. <laughs> so they right. pay. And uh, I think they don't want to pay for things that are harmful or that are bad. They don't want to pay for fraud, waste, abuse. They want to pay for good things, good outcomes. And if in the case of precision medicine, you know, we haven't demonstrated that, then that's on us, not on the payer. I try to bridge that gap in my discussions with payers, and I try to frame it in such a way that we don't look at this as a a competitive environment. People look at it sometimes and say, well, you know, precision medicine is at odds with evidence-based medicine, and, and, and that is wrong. What we should be thinking about is, I guess, baby steps. And so the way I like to position this is that within evidence-based medicine, there are still choices that we make. 
In frontline colorectal cancer, we choose between full FOX and full theory. We choose between, you know, an EGFR, I'm sorry, a, yeah, an EGFR monoclonal antibody and bevacizumab. How do we make those choices? You know, evidence-based medicine tells you that there isn't one right answer. Mm-hmm. So any one of those choices, those combinations is, is a potential right answer. And even, you know, left versus right colon cancer, that, that could that could point us in a direction. RAS mutation status points us in a direction, certainly. But there's deeper elements of, of potential possibilities from precision medicine, where if we really could identify the true responders to, to one versus the other therapy, that would be a good thing. And so I think that's an example of precision medicine and evidence-based medicine meeting harmoniously, because we now say, look, you have a RAS, or not just KRAS, but a RAS family mutation. We are not giving you the EGFR monoclonal antibody, period. And so, you know, we didn't know that 10 years ago, but we know that now. And so can we take all the other examples of what we know to be, quote, standard of care, and we have multiple therapeutic options, and can we layer in some precision medicine and show that that helps? Can we do that? And then as we move forward, I think we're going to get greater and greater adoption by the payers because the payers are paying for RAS testing and colorectal cancer because they realize it's beneficial in this limited circumstance. If we can show them, well, why don't you do more testing? Why don't you test other things? Because by testing, say, whether or not a patient can metabolize 5-FU, do they have a, a DPD polymorphism? Do they have a UGT polymorphism? Are they going to take a drug that's going to make them very ill and end up in the intensive care unit or certainly in the emergency department, and that's going to cost money and it's bad for the patient? So if we can show that that's a true statement, that the testing leads to a change in physician behavior, a change in the, the drugs given so that people don't have bad outcomes, then you're going to see adoption by the payers. But until we do those studies or until those studies are shown to be positive, we are not going to get there. And I think that, just to pile on a little bit, one of the problems is that we sometimes mislabel things as being precision medicine. Yeah. And so we have large national studies and even international studies where we, we label things as being precision where perhaps the underlying technical platform we're using lacks the precision necessary to really call that precision medicine. In other words, if you're going to assign people to two cohorts based on some type of test, the test has to work. And if it's wrong 10% of the time and your study is powered to have a, you know, a power at 15% difference, you're not going to make it statistically. So these are some of the things that we are struggling with today because the payers will argue, well, here's a study that failed. And you say, well, yeah, that failed seven years ago. Nobody does that kind of, quote, precision testing anymore. We've moved on to something much better. So we're playing catch up. Wow. Bobby Reddy, Dr. Bobby Reddy, Chief Medical Officer at Nant Health. Always a wealth of knowledge and always a fun conversation. Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Very much my pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jerome. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime in the future. Absolutely. We'd like to thank Dr. Reddy for being on the podcast. And of course, we thank all of our listeners for tuning in to the Precision Medicine Podcast. You can download transcripts of this episode at precisionmedicinepodcast.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PMP 
by Trapello. It's P-M-P-B-Y-T-R-A-P-E-L-O on Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, we know you know someone who would enjoy it too. So please tell them. They'll thank you. And so will we. 